Amen. So you ever notice when you walk somewhere, when you take a stroll, when you take a hike, uh, how much more attention you pay to details? When we drive, we're typically in a hurry, we're going somewhere, we hate traffic, we hate traffic lights, we hate people, we want to get off the road and be done with it as soon as possible. But there's something when you walk and you just take time and you, and, and you look and you, and you bring in details, you notice things that you wouldn't notice. You notice details that you wouldn't if you were running or if you were driving. You notice people that you wouldn't. There is something about walking where it's meditative and it's, and, and it's contemplative. And, um, and you ever notice it if you take a walk with someone? You begin to have conversations that you wouldn't have otherwise. There's something about walking over long distances where you begin to find out what you have in common. And so this, this image of walking is all throughout Scripture, especially in a uh, peripatetic culture, uh, just a word that means you use your feet all the time. Uh, and so people who walk everywhere. In Bible times, if, if you had a horse, you were rich. Most people, like Jesus throughout his ministry, would walk hours every day, would walk for days at a time often. And, and so walking is a good way to describe as you go about your daily life. And so much of Jesus' teaching, and even though the old Greek philosophers would be, would, would be taught on the move. And so as we go, as we walk, and the, the, the Christian life is one of learning as we go. It is learning as, as we walk, very much so in the style of the, the ancient Near Eastern life. And so this is an important thing for us to remember as we go through the book of Proverbs. Do we consider how we walk throughout our days? Do we take time to consider our decisions? Do we take time to bring in the details? Do we take time in meaningful conversations? Or are we just hurrying from one place to another, to another and never really walking? Um, so I actually want to read from Psalm 1. So if you're in your Bible at Proverbs, Psalms is Psalms the, book, uh, the book to the left. And the first psalm is the introduction psalm to the entire book. Uh, and many have argued, and I agree, that Psalm 1 is the introduction to all of the wisdom books. And so this is kind of the, the paradigm that we see throughout the psalms and certainly throughout Proverbs. But notice the analogy that is used here in Psalm 1. Psalm 1 begins, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Right away, we know what type of man you are by what you don't do. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its seasons, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And that's what we're going to look at this morning Way is a synonym for walk. The way, the way you go about things, your walk, your life. The righteous 
can stand before the Lord because of righteousness, but the wicked will not stand in judgment. They will perish. So that's what we're setting up this morning. And if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to go back and listen to the sermon because the introduction of the entire book, the, the, the preamble, if you will, the first seven verses are the theme, purpose, and prevailing principle for the entire book. And it sets up everything that is to follow. So this preamble to our series, Walking in Wisdom, looked at several different people. The purpose we get, we're going to just do a quick recap. Verse 2, this, is, this begins the, the purpose statement. And really, verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, and verse 6 are all purpose statements for the book of Proverbs. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealings and righteousness and justice and, and, and equity. This is the goal, to be wise in the things of the Lord. And here's the audience, to give prudence to the simple. And the simple are the, the, the immature, the unformed, those who will take on and absorb whatever is poured into them. So if you are, and this is addressed to the young primarily, but all of us have our simple tendencies where we will readily take in information without discerning it. And so this charge to the simple is be careful what you take in. Take in prudence, take in knowledge, take in discretion. So that's the simple, the immature. The next one addressed is the wise. The wise are those immature who take this instruction and produce wisdom and so uh, display maturity. And so the wise one is the one who understands the book. And then the third category is in verse 7. They're the foolish, which are none of the above. Because they despise wisdom and instruction because they lack the most important component, the fear of the Lord. And so this is going to set up everything else we do. And so we went from the preamble to now we're into the prologue. The prologue are basically everything from here on to the end of chapter 9. It's going to be a series, 9 or 10, depending on what commentary you read, different lectures and poems from father to son. From parents to son. And so these prologues, is the, 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 basically the words before the sayings, these, these uh, nine chapters of lectures and poems are setting up the bulk of the sayings within Proverbs. Typically when we read Proverbs, we, we, we um, love reading through the uh, poems and, and, and the allegories that, that we see in, in the first nine chapters. We get in, in the middle, we like to jump here, we like to jump there. That's the bulk of the book. Um, but you got to understand the prologue before we get to the bulk. So that's where we are. That's where we are in the, in the book. We're, we will be in chapters 1 through 9 for the foreseeable future. Uh, so I want to start reading in verse 7. I'm going to read through verse 19, and those are the verses we'll cover this morning. So Proverbs 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. For they are a graceful garland for your head and, and pendants for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them up and, and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot with us. We will all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. 
Hold back your foot from their paths. For their feet run to evil and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. But these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you bring fruit to our time this morning. May we be stirred in our affection for you. May we be stirred in our distaste for the things of the world. Lord, may you convict and root out anything in us that walks in the way of wickedness. May you root us in your word. May we find comfort and guidance from your instruction. May your spirit bring remembrance to these words throughout the week. May this be a spiritual encouragement to those who are spiritual and to those who are not. May you make them miserable in their sin. Convict them of their waywardness and remind them that their own blood is on their head. That they may repent and turn to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this is kind of interesting, right? We get the introduction, which makes a lot of sense. Okay, we're mapping out who we're talking to. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of all knowledge and wisdom and instruction. And then we go right into sinners and blood and theft and a murder plot. It's kind of a weird way to start a book, isn't it? So why would they start this way? This is something we're afraid to do in, in, in our culture is to be honest about evil. A great way to put the fear of the Lord into practice is to remind you that there are those out there who want you to fear them and not fear the Lord. Why do we need to fear the Lord? Because the world is evil and it is wicked and it wants to lead you astray. And this is a great parental teaching tool. Before you send your children out into the world, before you expose them to the things of the world, let them know what these things are. Don't hold back from them because the world is not going to hold back. Explain to them the darkness that awaits them if they follow along the path of the wicked. And of course, we don't need to be crass and vulgar like the world is. But if you lie to your kids and you suppress the truth of what the world offers, they will begin to listen to the lies that are more appealing from the world. And so parents, this is a, a, a call to you to prepare your children for what they are to face, especially in these days. And so this is what these, these parents are doing. They don't want their children to be um, ignorant of what's at stake in the world. So this is the first in the series of these, these poems, these, these lectures. And the poetic structure here is helpful. So uh, for you visual people, um, I put together a, a diagram. This should be helpful as we are, are going through. So you're going to see three addresses that begin with my son. The first is the introduction. This is, this is kind of the umbrella principle over the, the whole, the... the uh, 
whole poem. This is what I want you to know in this introduction that will help you in the rest of this illustration, which is the, the, the bulk of it. That second petition, my son, begins the parent's warning. And then, the, then he illustrates with two parallel examples. So he speaks in the uh, first person, we, us, uh, the, the father's speaking on behalf of these, the, the, these sinners, the appeal to kill and the appeal to steal or get rich. Then within that, um, the, the illustration, he now speaks in third person. The father is referring to them their way, their death, their things. And then um, the final verse is the proverb of the entire poem. It's the conclusion Son, listen to your good instruction. Here's the opposite of good instruction. Here's what happens to those who don't have good instruction and don't listen to their parents. So that's where we're going. If you need your phones, take pictures, do that, and we're going to jump in, into verse 8. Uh, verse 8 begins with a common Hebrew exhortation, a common Hebrew command. Here, Shema, listen and obey. There was no consideration of Hebrew parents that you would listen to, to what they say and not do it. We think the commands of our parents are optional. Well, I'm going I'm to hear what you say, and uh, I'm going to weigh it in my own mind. If it sounds good to me right now and how I feel, then I'll do it. That was not even a consideration. Son, do this, because it's for your own good. So here, my son. Next thing I want you to see, my son, mentioned three times, mentioned many times through these first nine chapters. This was common in the ancient world. We've discovered many of these from different cultures. A king would write a letter to his son. And the son who was preparing to take the throne would be given instructions. Here's how you rule this nation. Here's how you become a good king. Here's how you become a prosperous king. Here's how you win in battle. And so this is very common. But what's interesting about this one is this is written from a king. We know the king, Solomon, to a son, but we don't know the son. So this is left open-ended. This is left for all sons. This is left for instruction for all parents, for, for all children. This is typically to men, uh, to, to young men, and I'll give you some examples as, as to why. But the principles contained within are for all parents and for all teachers. Now, the reason this instruction was given primarily to sons is because sons were to lead nations and armies and families and businesses. This instruction is specific, specifically for young men to come into mature manhood. Um, but principles apply to everyone. And so when you hear the words, my son, it's coming from a loving father to a son. But there's this, there's this, this teacher-student parallel, too, um, Hannah reminded me earlier this, this week that in Eastern cultures, it's very common for elders in communities to refer to younger people as son and as daughter, even if they are not biologically connected to them. My son, my daughter, you would see elders as your instructors. You would look up to them as you would uh, father and mother. And so built within these, these commands is this, this, this familial connection, this respect from the younger to the older, and the love from the older to the younger. So hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. Notice the parallel here. The father is speaking as the primary instructor in the house, 
but the father and mother speak in agreement. The father's instruction is paralleled with the mother's teaching. And so um, there is a direct connection between the first commandment, fear the Lord. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. And the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. These are, this is kind of built in here. One thing that's not evident in the English, but it is in the Hebrew, hear my son your father's Torah. The word for law. The father is the law within the house. I am not giving you Mosaic law, but I'm giving you law to live by here. I'm setting down principles for a, a, a fruitful life. And um, your mother is well. So in, in, in that culture, the father would be the law in the house. But the mother would do most of the instruction throughout the child's adolescence in the very young age. Once he'd be bar mitzvahs, he becomes a son of the law. Then he, be, then he comes under his, his father's instruction. And so this is kind of how it would flow, but the, the parents would work in concert with one another. And so this was way before the idea of, of public school. They would never even consider that you would send your child off somewhere else for the, the secular world to be their primary instructors. For many cultures throughout history, and still for many to this day, the parents are primary instructors in their children's lives. And even if your children are in school, do not abdicate your role. This is something that is very important in our culture. We wonder why children leave the church and, and, and doubt their faith and why we, we, we struggle because parents have checked out of educating their children. Parents don't see their primary role as raising them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. They just want them to get, get them off the college and get them a good job. This is not biblical. This book of Proverbs is helpful because it puts the responsibility where it should be. One, you must have the fear of the Lord. You must trust in him first. You will be responsible for your actions. But right along with that, your parents, while you're under their charge, have responsibility to raise you and instruct you and to discipline you. So this whole dynamic of, of son and mother and father will be prevailing throughout the entire books. Excuse me, an entire book. Four, these instructions, these teachings, purpose statement, they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. Uh, I want to unpack this a little bit because this, this is helpful. What, what is the author commending here? Um, why should you listen? This is adornment language. These, these are royal ornaments. So graceful. This, in the Hebrew, speaks of favor or approval. You have been given favor and approval through these instructions, and they are a garland for your head. It is a twisted wreath, a crown. This instruction, this teaching, is a crown for your head, and it is a pendant for your neck. When you were given a necklace, when you were given a pendant, commoners did not um, wear shiny jewelry. Uh, probably uh, today many commoners wear shiny jewelry wanting to seem uncommon. But it was not common then. So if someone gives you a pendant, some kind of jewel or, or something that is crafted, it, it, it shows that you have status, that you have achievement, that you have beauty. We have two examples of this. Both Joseph 
and Daniel were given gold necklaces when they were given promotions by their respective kings. And so this is a sign that you have been given a promotion, that you have been recognized by the sovereign king who says, you have value in my eyes. This is what God's word is to be to us. This is how we are to view our, our earthly father's godly wisdom, if, in, if indeed he is godly, but how much more so for our heavenly father, who says, if you take my instruction, you take my teaching, because I love you, it will be your, your crown of glory. It will be your, your, your pendant of status. You will be adorned in a way which no one else will, which most will never see. But that's probably the hard thing for us, is that we want the things that other people can see, not the, the, the internal adornment. So this reminds me of something that Sheree and I talk about all the time, often, and um, the women do, 1 Peter 3. If you have your Bibles, turn there. If not, it'll be up on the screen. But in 1 Peter 3, he talks about this in reference to women. So this is not just for women, but the principle applies to women and men. So in 1 Peter 3, and we, uh, we covered this just a couple weeks ago, 1 Peter 3, verse 3, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. The internal character of our heart, the things that, that please God are not ex external. The, the, the counsel of the writer of Proverbs is do what is pleasing in the sight of God. These things, these, these imperishable riches that come with instruction in my word, these things are pleasing to God. Go after those crowns, those pendants. Notice, these are valuable items. In just a moment, you're going to have others who are going after other valuable items. And so I want us to think about, now, so for, for men when we read, First Peter 3 was like, well, I don't have to worry about that because I don't braid my hair and all those things, and um, I definitely don't. Um, but guys, it's a little different for us. For guys, it's physique, it's cars, it's, it's, it's jobs, it's, it, it's recognition, it's whatever it is. But we look toward external things instead of, and this is just natural, we can be honest with ourselves, but how often do we think about how we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ? How often do we think about our, our internal adornments? How often do we think about how God sees our heart and our, our mind and our affections? And so this is a good question for us to ask. When we think about the crowns and the, the pendants, what immediately comes to your mind when you hear the word rich or riches? What do you think of? Do you think of the people with the nicest house, the nicest cars, the nicest watch, the boat, the, the, the nicest clothes? Is that immediately what comes to mind? Or when you think of rich, what are eternal riches? Do you think of the poor man who is rich toward the things of God, who knows the scripture inside and out as the one who is rich for eternity? We don't, we don't often do that, and we don't realize how much our minds are trained by the world around us to see riches in the way that the world sees it and not in the way that the Lord sees it. And so we must learn to train to see things as the way God sees them. And so uh, let's jump into this, 
this illustration, the second my son here. Um, so to illustrate the importance of sound teaching, the only way you can know if you're getting good teaching or not is when it's put to the test. If you get good teaching and you're never faced with temptation, you are, you're, you're, you're never drawn into evil, then you don't really know if that teaching is good or not. Here's how you know. My son, let me give you an illustration. If sinners entice you, do not consent. Now, sinners will make compelling offers. And as we begin to look through this, you may think, well, this is just crazy. How often is someone saying, let's go kill people and get blood on our hands? This is exactly what described the reign of, the reign of Manasseh down the line of David. They were, they were excited for innocent blood. And I'm going to give you some examples, and I'm going to show you how you are too. Um, but one thing that's, that's here in, in the Hebrew that is not in the English that I want to draw your attention to, when he says, my son, if sinners entice you. Uh, in the Hebrew, it's more like, my, my son, um, when sinners call you to be simple. Remember, think back to verse 4, to give prudence to the simple. My son, the sinners know that, that, that you're simple. They're going to prey on your simpleness. They're going to want to to fill you with their version of, of wisdom, do not consent to it. So there's a bit of a play on words there. Um, so let's read through this quickly, and then I'll bring a couple things to mind, and uh, we will break this down. So if they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Let Sheol, or excuse me, like Sheol, let us swallow them alive. And whole, like those who go down to the pit, we shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. When was the last time someone pulled you into a murder plot? Um, hopefully never. So that means if I've never been pulled into a murder plot, that this doesn't apply to me at all, right? Wrong. So this is an extreme example to get your attention, but the ways of the world are much more subtle. The enticements of the world uh, are, are, are very confusing sometimes. It's not as blatant as this. So think about it. Think about the shows that you watch, the music that you listen to, the company you keep. How often do they draw you into and desensitize you to common sins? How often do they make things appealing, even murder? It's like, no, come on, Tim, that's crazy. Anybody else root for... John Wick's body count, you know, <laughs> Joel's hand went up really quick. <laughs> um, but how often are, are we desensitized? We'll watch, we'll watch shows and we begin to root for the guy who's got as much blood on his hands as, as he can. And we read this and think that it's crazy. We're conditioned to this. And we're conditioned in that to think little about human life. Well, that's just a bad guy, or that's just somebody I didn't like. Just kill him off and, and, and get rid of him. Even in the most calm of shows, we, 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 we root for people to be killed off because they're annoying. And some of us, like me, wish we could do that in real life, but, but we're not gonna. The other thing, when you begin to see life as expendable, you have very little value to life. And what's crazy to me, because I'm not an animal person, people will see John Wick kill 500 people, and they kill the dog and they lose their minds. I don't understand that. So that, that, that makes us think, think less and less about human life. But our, our, our culture and our flesh is conditioned to blood. There is something about it. And even 
those squeamish out here, every one of you in this room has committed murder in your heart. Every one of you in this room has been so angry with someone else that you would just wish that they would die. And so according to Jesus' standards, we all have blood on our hands. So getting past our sensitivity issues, I want you to notice something else here. Notice the language in verses 11 through 14. Come with us. Let us. The call is to the son to, the, to, the son to join us, to be one of us. This appeal is for every young man and probably every young man and in, 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 young woman in the room to be a part of the crowd. We just want to be cool. We just, we just want to go along with what our, our peers are doing. Peer pressure is a real thing. It's a, it's a desire to fit in with the crowd. They offer this solidarity. That is one of the things that trips up young people so often is they just want to belong. Oh, if I can do this, then this group will like me. If I do this, then this group will like me. Even to murder. I can think of the stupidest things I've done in my life. And without exception, they were all with friends or to impress other groups of friends. Then I've done some stupid things. Amen. <laughs> Josh would know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not arguing. Um, where was I? <laughs> uh, but this is important for us to think about, right? Because will we lower our standards? Will we be, will we be brought into the sins of others because we fear man more than we fear God? This is the temptation. You know, now we have it in our friend groups, but we have it in the public sphere. If you don't agree with what we agree with, if you don't promote what we promote, if, we don't, if you don't side with us on these issues, you're on the outside. We don't want to be on the outside. We want to be light. We want to be brought in with the crowd. And as we talked about in Mark, I'm talking about here, beware of the crowd. Because pretty soon, they're shouting crucify him, and they got torches and, and pitchforks. Whether you look like Frankenstein or not, beware of the crowd. But that's our temptation. We want to be part of us. We want to be part of them. Even if it means getting pulled into blood and ambush. This, the language here is of bloodthirsty, premeditated, wanton killing with no concern for life. Why does he say, my son? Because let's be honest, it's not really a temptation for, for women, commonly. Um, Paul talks about in 1 Timothy 5, there are other temptations for women. The uh, idleness and the, the busybody and the, and, and the gossip. But this is more speaking to men. Um, men, we are prone. You see a little boy from as soon as he can walk, he knows how to hold a fist. We are prone to violence and we are drawn to violence. So son, this sounds enticing, especially when you're a young man and, and you're, you're full of testosterone, but don't get drawn into it. This extreme example. So if you're a woman in this room or you're a very peaceful guy, and I'm sure you are, um, you have the temptation to read this and think, well, I've never sought blood. I've never gone out for the innocent. This doesn't even appeal to me. Um, this is our natural state. I want you to turn to Romans 3. So in Romans 3, Paul tells us that we are all equal in this. And this is not new to Paul. This is not mean old Paul um, telling you how, how wicked you are. 
You know, so we can d- defend the doctrine of total depravity. This is Paul quoting exclusively from the Psalms. Romans 3, pick him in verse 10. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You're like, wow, that's harsh. That's not me. The doctrine of total depravity doesn't say that you are always after blood. Or that, that, that everything you do looks like this. But... That sin has so totally taken over who you are that you are defined by it. And you are condemned with each and every sin. You are totally unable to choose what is ultimately good in the sight of God because you have no fear of the Lord. That's what this is. So even if you have only had one murderous thought ever, you are a murderer. Even if you've only taken joy in blood one time, you are bloodthirsty by your very nature. But praise God, it doesn't stop there. Look at verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it and righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The gospel is good news only because of the bad news. Why does God allow bad things to happen? Because the gospel shines so much more brightly in light of our own wickedness. That that is us. That is what we deserve. That's who we are. But the righteousness of God became manifest in Jesus Christ. Because he came while we were murderers and sinners like those men in Proverbs. And in case you you forget, well, doesn't Jesus love everybody? And isn't, isn't there, isn't there um, well, we're not really that bad. Paul reminds them again in verse 23, for there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I'm gonna give you the bad news. I'm gonna give you the good news. And since you think you're still good, I'm gonna give you the bad news again. You have all fallen short. But if you are in Christ, you are all justified in him. So I want to move on in, in, in Proverbs. So just in case you're trying to let yourself off of the hook, you're still on the hook. Um, verse 12, not just murder, any type of murder. We want to send them down to, to Sheol, the death. Let us be like death itself. We are a bunch of grim reapers walking around. This is how, how strong the language is. And whole. We're going to send the entire body down. We don't want any trace of our wickedness. We want to fully uh, dive into it, and we want every trace of those who we go after to perish. And they say, them. Let us swallow them. There's no such thing as one murder. There is a heart that hates and wants to see other people who stand in your way gone, and so it becomes the plural. And so once those owners are dead, verse 13, we shall find all precious goods and we shall fill our houses with plunder from their houses. It's kind of what's implied here. We're going to get them out of the way so that we can get rich, so that, so that we can pull all of their treasures. 
It is a very short walk from covetousness to murder. Just think of King David. It started with an innocent walk, didn't it? Watch how you walk. A walk on his roof in the middle of the day when he should have been with other men and not like a lazy man at home. But it started with an innocent glance, right? Just looking down and seeing a beautiful woman. But then he begins to conspire in his head. I can get away with this if I just do this, if I just do this. If I can get away with this if I can get her husband out of the way. Then I can have her for all for myself. David did this. David did not have any blood on his hands, but in the Lord's eyes he did. That's why he couldn't build the temple. He put her husband, Uriah, on the front lines so that he would die, so that he could have his wife. It is a very short trip when you say, I want this man's wife or this man's goods. To say, well, it's just easier if I just get that man out of the way. So we must guard our hearts. Even the sins of the heart that no one else sees can easily lead to murder. And the gravest sins, grievous sins that everyone else sees. So you've got the call to murder. You've got the call to greed. And now this is probably the most insidious. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. Join our ranks. We'll share everything. Be one of us. That's what the call of of the world is. Not just the blood, not just the gain, but be with us. Misery loves company. Greed brings us into partnership that people, uh, excuse me, with people that we would otherwise avoid. Amen? If you think about any time that you did, anything you did for for selfish gain or for, for greed, you're like, well, I usually wouldn't do this or associate with this person, but because I can make a really good profit on it, I'm going to bend here. This is the call of the world and our sin and, and our flesh desires to be united with our, our neighbor. Here's what the fear of man looks like. I want to be loved by the world. I want the world to accept me. I want to be one of its own so I won't speak out against the world. But here's where the gospel stands in opposition to that. Christ came and took on flesh that you might be united with him and not the world. That you might die to the world, not share a common purse with them. Not to stand in lockstep with them, to walk with them, but to walk with Christ. One of the beauties of the gospel, and there are so many, our justification, our adoption, but our union with Christ. We become one with him and one with one another. We get to be joined with other believers, but the world says, no, be joined with us. We've got more fun. We've got more toys. But we've got death. and We've got greed and murder, and we're going to see the end of those in a moment. But we are not to wear the yoke of the world. To be unevenly yoked, that applies to relationships 100%, but it also applies to business, it applies to partnership, it applies to agreement. A yoke is a, a tool of work for an oxen. Jesus says, take my yoke, do my work because it's light. But if you get unevenly yoked with an unbeliever, what happens in an uneven yoke is you get one strong ox and one weak ox. And the strong ox is going to pull the weak ox to one side. If you get unequally yoked with an unbeliever, you are the weak ox. And you will get dragged to the side. 
but the world wants you to be in agreement with them and to share the purse with them. So the Father is speaking in the first person there, speaking in place of the sinners. Do this with us. We can do this. But now the last my son, my son, now the Father is speaking about them in the third person. Do not walk in the way with them. He gives his appeal and response to the sinner's offer. Notice the language that he uses. Look at what's repeated here. All of these synonyms. My son, do not walk in the way. Hold back your foot from their paths. Their feet run to evil and they make haste. Kind of jogging. All of this, this language of walking path, running, way. He's saying They want you to walk with them. They want you to be in their path. They want you to join with them. Don't do it. Avoid it. Don't share the same road with them. And many of us try to justify in our minds, well, what's the big deal if I walk alongside unbelievers? What's the big deal if unbelievers are my closest friends? They're not really that, that, that bad. Because what happens is walking leads to talking. That's how it works. Talking leads to agreeing. When you walk with an unbeliever over time, you begin to talk with them. And you realize they're not that unreasonable after all. Well, I don't know if the gospel could really be true because how could he send this good person to hell? Then you begin to agree with them and then you begin to sympathize with them. And now you are in league with them. Not to say that you can't have unbelieving friends. Don't hear me say that. But when your main influence are unbelievers, don't be surprised when you look like them. When your children look like them. Love unbelievers, but know that they are dead and they are lost and they need a savior. You should not walk in agreement in arm in arm with someone who does not know your Lord. Amen. Amen. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, also quoting from Proverbs, that bad company corrupts good morals. It is hard to be righteous and ethical if you are walking alongside the world every day. If they're the ones who constantly have your ear. So in this series, Walking in Wisdom, how we walk and who we walk with will define us. How we walk and who we walk with will define us. So the father goes on. For, now he gives an explanation. This is just to show you how foolish they are. For, in vain, is a net spread in the sight of any bird. Now, if you don't pick up on that. Listen to how foolish this is. Now, birds are not made in the image of God, and they're, they are, they're not entirely smart, but they're not that stupid. You're not going to catch a bird and lay a net out in front of the bird. He says, this is how foolish they are. There's the bird I want to catch. Here, bird, here's the net. Jump in. He's saying, this is how silly what they are doing is. And he's going to go on into the, the next verse, these men lie in wait for their own blood and set ambush for their own lives. Here's what he's saying. They seek treasure, but they end up with vanity, which is worthlessness. They seek the blood of others, but they end up with their own blood being shed. They will reap what they sow. They do it in vain because all of their pursuits are vain. It is as silly 
as trying to catch a bird when the bird is looking at you. So he's saying, my son, you're smarter than a bird. The trap is set right in front of you. Don't walk into this net. It is obvious. This is the purview of a wise father. I have been there before. I have heard these calls of the world. Don't do it. Don't step in the net. And how often are we those birds, but not as smart as those birds? The trap is right in front of us. The net is right in front of us, and we walk into it. Maybe some of you are thinking, no, not me. Okay, how often does your curiosity get you? Well, just one click. Just one lie. Maybe if I just take this pen from work, or if I just fudge the numbers a little bit, or if I just look over on someone else's paper, how often does our curiosity we, we know that it's wrong. We know the trap is set right before us, and still we do it anyway. So I was thinking about this, because a lot of you guys know I have raccoon problems. If you've been to my house, you've seen the trap in the back, and I hate them. Um, because they're nasty little creatures who make a mess of the backyard, and they keep coming. I've gotten rid of like 30-something raccoons. And you would think that they'd talk to one another and find out that it's not going to go well for you if you come in my backyard. But every time, and it's funny, I will, like two raccoons will, will, will come. One will get caught, and I will bait the same trap in the same spot, and the next night, the other one will get caught. You think, oh, the raccoons are smart. No, they're not. There is a, there's green everywhere, but then there's a cage. And in the back of the cage is whatever junk that I'm throwing out of my refrigerator. And I, it, it doesn't matter. Old mashed potatoes, chicken bones, they'll eat whatever. Um, but you know what gets them? Their appetite, their desire. They are smart little creatures, but man, that smells good. And so even though this, this cage looks really sketchy, I'm going to take the chance that I can go back there and get my fill and not get caught. And what happens? They, they get caught. Um, it's their desires that get them caught. And so here's why they end up with their own blood, verse 18. But these men lie in wait for their own blood, and they set their ambush for their own lives because of their sinful desires. Turn to James chapter 1. The way of the wicked is vain, and it is short-sighted. My son, don't be misled. James is, uh, many people call James the Proverbs of the New Testament, uh, and this is helpful and just plays in really well with what we're studying. So James chapter 1, pick up in verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Notice that language. Psalms like Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. Notice the connection. The crown while you are living. The wisdom and instruction of the Lord. Put that crown on now and you will receive the crown of life for eternity. The crown of glory which God has promised to those who love him, i.e., fear the Lord. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. This is an easy cop-out. Well, why would God put me in that situation? James anticipates your response, and here's what he says. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires, just like those fat, greedy raccoons. We know it's going to trap us. We know it's going to get it, but we think we can get away with it anyway. But it's, the desire doesn't just stop with desire. 
Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. This is why their own blood is on their own hands, because of their own desires, and they deserve it. Because that's what they most want. If you want blood and you want riches in this world, God will give it to you. This is what James is, is saying here. So one of the themes that is consistent throughout the book of Proverbs is that crime doesn't pay. There is no riding off into the sunset in Proverbs. There is no, I'm going to get rid of it today and everything's going to be good. There is no Ocean's 11 ending, 12, 13, 18, whatever it is. There is no ending that says the criminal's going to get away and live happily on a beach somewhere. Even if you do live happily on a beach somewhere in this life, judgment is coming. And you can get away with it now. Their death is on their hands here, and every one of us is going to face death. But what you don't want to face is the second death. The death that goes on and on for eternity, where your blood is on your head because you rejected the blood of Christ. That death goes on and on as the, the eternal punishment of the full wrath of God because you loved your own pursuits and your own desires more than you loved him. is what will come to the wicked. Most of us know Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is what? So let's stop there. The wages of sin is death. It's exactly what the book of Proverbs is saying. You continue on in sin, it will lead to death. That's why we need the gospel. That's why we need the good news because every one of us in this room is a sinner. Every one of us in this room is greedy, murderous, adulterous in our hearts. And it all leads to death without exception. But we don't stop there. What's the rest of the verse? For the ways of sin is death, but the free gift of eternal, right? God, yep, yep. <laughs> I'm trying to like catch up on everybody up. Of God is eternal life in Christ, yes. But the gospel must be put in opposition to the alternative. Death versus the free gift of God, eternal life in Christ, Jesus our Lord. Isn't it incredible that the things we work so hard for in our own strength can't save us? We can work all day long. We can rob, cheat, and steal, but can't add one hour to our lives. We can amass all of the goods that the world has to offer and still be fools. But God's gift is free. Through faith in Jesus Christ, the crown that never perishes, the gold that is given to a son of the king to please the king. That's incredible that what God offers is, is eternal. But we have to be honest with ourselves. We love our sandcastles. This is one of my favorite uh, pastoral illustrations. So if you heard me use it before, I'm going to use it again because it's us. Sandcastles are amazing things. You ever made a sandcastle and you were so proud of yourself? You, you go to the beach with a little kid and he makes a sandcastle and wants to show everybody, look what I've done, look what I've made, and how long does it last? It is like an instant sermon illustration because it's not long before a wave comes or another kid comes by and just kicks it and they are crushed for five seconds. And then they go build another sandcastle. We have been given a room in our father's house that will never pass away. 
And we are content with building sandcastles that keep eroding and falling over, building up riches in this world. I am not saying don't go to work. I am not saying don't save. I am not saying don't be wise with the things God has given you. But don't think that that is your, that is your, your home. Don't make that your, your treasure. You can't live in a sandcastle. But Jesus said, I'm going so I can prepare a room for you in my Father's house. Last verse here, verse 19. Such are the ways of everyone. Remember, ways is another walk synonym. Such are the walkings of everyone. Everyone, without exception. This is the way. This is the way of everyone. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm excited for Mandalorian too. So um, I just had to throw that in there. So this is the way of everyone because it's not going to end well. This is the way of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. This in the Hebrew means to take a little cut off. Um, basically, you take what doesn't belong to you, either property or people. This, everyone who minimizes, who uses people and things for their own expense, for their own greed, this is what's going to happen to them. They're going to die. Their blood is on their own hands. Their unjust gain, you think you're going to amass for yourself, it's going to take your life. It's going to take the life of its possessor, its master. You think you are master over these things, but they are just the death of you. Wisdom is the most common exhortation in the book of Proverbs. Seek wisdom, get wisdom, use wisdom. But wickedness is the most common warning because it is around every corner. It appeals to every one of us in different ways, and that's why we are going through this book because we need the reminder that the wisdom of God begins with the fear of the Lord, and the wickedness of man is all around us. So just a couple final thoughts here. Um, I want you to consider... This Proverbs is a book that forces you to think, that compels you to think. It is not one of those books that you can just read through quickly and forget. If you do, you're missing the point. Proverbs begs us to read and consider and weigh, and they'll consider the end of things. So that's why this walk and path analogy is so often here. Can you think and consider the path before you get on it? Can you think, if I start here, where will this lead? Can I follow the dominoes to see the end of this thing? Most of us don't. Most of us step on the path, look straight in front of us, say, this stone looks good, this stone looks good, and don't see the wolf, the waterfall, the briars, whatever it is up ahead. What Proverbs does for us is it considers how we walk, but also the end of where we are walking to. And this is the wisdom of good parents. I've been there before. I know where this path will lead. Don't take it. Because this is a wisdom of our heavenly father. I know what is good for you. Walk in the path of righteousness. Because even if you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you will fear no evil because I am with you. This is the call to the people of God not to follow the, 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 the foolish plans of the world, 
but can you do this in your own life? And this is one of the things I'd like you to think about this week. Do you apply this in your own life? Can you consider the paths that you are walking? Do you consider the people that you walk with? The things that you allow into your mind, do you consider them? Or you just go about them, and then you turn around and you say, where am I? Because you weren't paying attention all the way along. So pastoral advice, stop. Think, pray, seek counsel before choosing paths. Simple wisdom of, of Proverbs, but it would save so many of us, so many of you, a lot of headache. And right along with that, do you count the cost of following Christ? Do you count the cost of the way that he calls you on? Take up your cross and follow me. I am the way. Do you count that cost, what it really means to follow Christ? Do you consider what it means to be associated with him and not the world? And likewise, do you count the cost when you try to follow the world? Do you consider what it is asking you to do and where it wants you to go? And the question throughout this book we will ask many times is, will you choose wisdom or will you choose folly? And this is my question for you. Will you choose the crown and pendant of righteousness? Life in Jesus Christ, the free gift of God. Or will you choose the enticing call of the world for quick and unjust gain, which turns, which leads to death. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness and your wisdom, for your mercy and your grace. What a blessing it is to have your word. Lord, it is truly a gracious garland around our head. May we wear it proudly as a gold pendant around our neck, as the mark of royalty, sons of the living God. May we listen to our Heavenly Father's instruction. May we not be like the fools. May we see the trappings of the fools and like that wise bird, not step into it, not like the stupid raccoon. Lord, may your people grow in maturity because they love you, because they fear you. May they hold on to the free gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ and forsake all else. May we be a people who shows discernment and applies godly wisdom to every area of our lives. And as we walk, May we help those along the way that we may walk together in unity, unity with Christ and not with the world. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.